My name is Ashley Sebula, and welcome to the Through Every Season podcast, where we discuss what it's like to be a Christian woman in modern day society. We will dive into the truth, trials, and tribulations that come with having a faith. You're never alone here, and we will help you walk through every season. Welcome back, everyone, to Through Every Season podcast, January 2024. It is the very first podcast of the year, and boy, do we have an episode for you today. I am so excited about our podcast guest for this month, and guess what? I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. Madeline is a 20-year-old Christian woman currently living in Utah. She makes videos on TikTok documenting her life as a 20-year-old wife, making sourdough, discussing her adoption journey, giving updates on her son, and doing daily devotionals. Madeline will be discussing her pregnancy, choosing adoption, and life as a birth mother in an open adoption. And we're going to dive right in. Well, welcome, Madeline, to the Through Every Season podcast. I am so excited to have you on because I have been watching you online for for several months. It's probably been about six months now and just feels surreal to have somebody that I follow on TikTok just meeting with me here today and talking about a really intimate and really important topic. And I just can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your day to come on my podcast. Well, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited for this opportunity to share further my story. Awesome. 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 So as you would have heard in the introduction, Madeline is a TikToker who she shares her experience with adoption, marriage, sourdough, all of the girly things on TikTok. So today we're going to be talking about her pregnancy. We're going to be talking about her adoption story, as well as what it's been like to share that those experiences on TikTok. But of course, like every single podcast, we do drink of the day around here. So Madeline, do you have a drink of the day today? Yeah. So I actually have two drinks with me. I have iced coffee and water, but iced coffee is definitely my go-to today. I have a cold brew with me. Ooh, that's fancy. And do you have like a cold brew? Do you have like the cold brew maker? No, I don't. I buy this stuff from Walmart, the cold brew concentrate. And then I add my own like syrups and creamers and whatever. So today I just have some vanilla syrup in there. Okay. And are you an iced coffee girly or like a hot coffee girly? I'm iced coffee girly all the way, all the way. <laughs> hey, 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 respect. I've, I've been both in my life. I've been both. <laughs> I've been on both sides and I do, I do love an iced coffee, but it's cold here in Ohio. So I have to save it for a few months. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, you would think by now that this podcast was sponsored by Poppy. I mean, if Poppy does want to sponsor this podcast, I will allow them. Like they are welcome to reach out to me, even though they won't, but we do have yet another Poppy. So we have the orange Poppy today. I love poppies. (laughs) Have you ever had a poppy, Madeline? I have. I have. I think the strawberry lemon one is my favorite. They're so good. That's my second favorite. That is my second favorite. It was in the variety pack that I got Mm -hmm. from from Costco. So if you want the best deal on poppies, because they are kind of expensive, you have to go to Costco. Obviously, yes. 
And I think the one that I have, it's like orange, strawberry, lemon, and um, cherry limeade. I'm not as big as fan as the cherry limeade, but I'll take it. I'll definitely take that recommendation and hit up Costco. Yes. Idea. They had a sale the other day. So they're like $2, $2.49, like at Kroger. Mm-hmm. And for a pack of 15, it was like 14 something dollars. I was like, that is that's less a than deal. a dollar a pop. <laughs> right? I could, awesome. <laughs> I, could t- yeah, I bought two cases. Like, I could not pass that up. People on, people on this podcast know a girl loves a poppy. So, so yeah, those are our drinks of the day today. So on every podcast where we have a guest on, we always like to go back to the beginning. So we're going to go back to the beginning and Madeline's story today. And we're going to go back to her childhood and we're going to learn about what it was like for her growing up, what it was like for her as a child and a teenager. I was going to ask where you were born and where you grew up, if where you grew up is different from the place that you were born. So I was born and raised majority of my life in the Portland, Oregon. So I kind of moved around the Portland, Oregon area from Beaverton to Hillsboro. Um, up until middle school, where we moved a little bit more south um, to McMinnville, Oregon. And then my parents moved again to Central Oregon in high school. But I have lived all over from Oregon to Missouri, Texas, Arizona, and now Utah. Oh, wow. You have been a little bit of everywhere. And I've never been like west of like Missouri. So <laughs> West Coast is like foreign foreign land to me but wow you have lived a little bit of everywhere that's awesome though yeah Yeah, I've it's definitely been a journey and when I talk to people I forget that like that's not normal to like move everywhere um but it's definitely given me a lot of life experience and um yeah I'm very grateful for that oh that's awesome and so you did mention your family so what does your family look like like in terms of the people close to you and the people in your family Yeah. So, um, my parents actually got divorced when I was very young. I was five years old. Um, and they quickly, well, not quickly, they both have remarried, um, since then. And so, uh, I have a stepfather and a stepmom and they both brought kids into that. And so being able to have siblings, cause I was the only child between my parents has been super fun. And the dynamics have definitely changed as we've all gotten older. Um, but overall it's been, it's been super good. I'd like to, like, if you were to ask me a year ago, my childhood, I would say was traumatic, but now that I'm married and wanting to start a family of my own soon, I'm actually very grateful for the experiences that I had, um, because it's taught me what I want for a family in my future. Yeah. So awesome too. Like you, you started out as an only child and now like you have, you know, such a bigger family. I think that that's, I think that that's awesome. And the new perspective, that you have too on like your family and giving your family grace and all the things, all that comes with getting older too. So absolutely. absolutely. And did you grow up like in a Christian family? Cause of course people would know from your TikTok and what you've shared on TikTok that you are somebody who, who is a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus. Um, did you grow up in a household that was Christian or went to church or what did that look like for you growing up? Yeah, so I did grow up in a Christian household. However, because my parents had very different, I would say opinions, they were both technically Christian. But um, my mom was very much like, well, if you don't sin, there's no reason for grace. So you might as well. And then my dad was a little bit more on the legalistic side um, of just very like, well, this is what the Bible says. And so 
as I've gotten older, I've just been able to navigate the gift that we have of grace, but also like, let's try hard to follow what the Bible says. And then as, um, especially through this year, the Lord, my relationship with the Lord has gotten even more, um, I would say important in my life. The Lord has always been important in my life, but you know, as my teenage years, I definitely drifted away. Um, I definitely was like, well, I'll just get to that when I need to. Um, but since becoming pregnant, we'll talk about that more later. Um, the Lord has definitely been the center of my life and fully surrendering my life to him. And I've been able to see the repercussions of that, um, in a way that I'm not just following Jesus because of my parents. And that's been super special and life-changing. You have so, I'm just going to say this. You have so much like perspective for somebody who, who is 20. I I'm just looking back on when I was 20 and I was like a numb nugget, you know, <laughs> I was not as like mature and have like the perspective that you hold. And I, I just respect that so much about you. And I know other people who watch your TikToks probably see that, see that about you too. But yeah, you, all I'm going to say, you have your life and like your, your faith journey much more together than I did when I was 20. So just major props to you. Oh, well, thank you. It's definitely, it's definitely been a journey and um, I know it looks different for everybody. And speaking of a teenager, you alluded to being a teenager, which is the perfect segue to the next question of what type of teen were you? Like, what was, who was Madeline when she was a teenager? The first, I'm just going to go with my gut. The first word that came to mind, and I'm not proud to say this, was rebellious. I think I was in that, I, I grew up going back and forth between parents and the expectation of change. I almost felt like I had to change who I was when I was at each parent's house. So when I was a teenager, I was like, this is impossible I don't care what anybody says. I'm just going to do my thing. Um, and so honestly, I was not, I was not the best teenager. I definitely put, made my parents, gave, gave them a run for my money, I guess, run for their money. Um, so I'd say rebellious, but I'm also in a way grateful for those years because I wouldn't be where I am today without those years that got me closer to Jesus. I think a lot of people, whenever they think of teenagers, rebellious is one of the first words. It's probably top five, maybe top three. Um, when they think of, when they think of, um, they think of teen. I just think it's great that again, you you have the perspective, and you're like, I'm ready to change, and I'm ready, I'm ready to mature. I mean, I I'm 29, and I always look back on the things that I did when I was a teenager, when I was a young adult, and I literally physically cringe in the moment. I'm like, ugh. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. Like, oh, who were you? But again, it's all about growing up. It's all about moving on. And everybody's got to go through some sort of stage in life to give them some character. Absolutely. We're all looking back at those younger years and cringing because, uh, yeah, there's outfits. There was things I said that were just I would never do again. And I know from what you've shared online that you actually found out that you were pregnant when you were 18 years old. Yes. Yes. Correct. Okay. So you were 18 and when you were, when you found out you were pregnant, were you still in high school or were you just graduated high school? So because of COVID, I graduated a year early. Okay. Um, so I graduated when I was 17 and I found out I was pregnant the following fall. So I graduated up June of 21 and I found out I was pregnant October 22. Um, so I was like a year and a half out. Yeah. How did you find out that you were pregnant? I'm just going to be honest and real. I was sexually active that summer and I was always had a very regular cycle. <laughs> and so um, being even a day late was like really weird for me. 
and I had taken tests in the past and I knew, I, in my in the back of my head I was like I just got off of work and I was like I'm just a day late and I had a test and I was like I'll just take it like it's gonna be negative I know it's gonna be negative which is why I didn't originally film it the filming that I have on TikTok is actually the second test I took um so I had like one of those cheapy ones um and I took it and I just got ready and I wasn't thinking about it and I looked at it and there was like a faint line and I went to HEB which if you're in Texas you know what HEB is <laughs> as fast as possible and I probably spent 40 or 50 dollars on tests and I took every single one of them <laughs> and so because I was just in shock and my mom had struggled with endometriosis and PCOS which is why I was so careless because I was like oh I, this isn't gonna happen um you know this is just a time in my life I'll figure it out later nobody talks about how expensive those tests are like for real <laughs> <They're so expensive. laughs> they are they are so they are so expensive and funny that you bring up, you know, your mother having endometriosis and, um, PCOS, which we have talked a little bit about on the podcast. Um, you for yourself, are you somebody who's diagnosed with endometriosis or PCOS? Um, I was not, I just actually, I've never, I, I had pretty painful periods growing up. So they thought maybe, but, um, they, I wasn't diagnosed until actually last month I went in for a cyst and they were like, well, you're kind of on the verge, the amount you have, if you have any more rupture, then you're technically diagnosed with mm. PCOS. So we're in the process of treating it before, before I actually have a diagnosis. So as of right now, no. And I'm claiming that I don't. Oh, wow. Really awesome that your doctors are being really like proactive and almost preventative because a lot of them are not, they're just not like that. Exactly. So. exactly. And my husband and I want to start a family, which is why we're like, let's just go see someone, test my hormone levels, see where we are. And sure enough, my body wasn't producing progesterone and a bunch of other things. So we're going to bite that in the bud before we want to go and start a family. So before you had your positive pregnancy test, because again, you <laughs> took a lot of tests, which is so normal because it's always surreal. And you're like, ah, oh, maybe this one was, um, a false, yeah, false positive, or I don't really believe this. There's something mm -hmm. wrong, but what were your symptoms before you had your positive pregnancy test? Looking back, I truly don't believe I had anything except for a one day late period, <laughs> which um, I was very, very early when I found out when I went to the doctor, um, they, the day I ended up testing was only 10 DPO, which I didn't even know at the time. Cause I wasn't planning. Um, apparently I'm one who ovulates later in my cycle. And so knowing that that's probably why I didn't have any symptoms before I tested because I was so early in that line. If you've seen any of my TikToks, that line was so, so very faint. So that's why I had to take five digitals. <laughs> Yeah. You always hear, especially like in like the trying to conceive community, especially like the word, the words like DPO, which just means days post ovulation yeah. and BFP, <laughs> big fat positive. They're all like slang terms or jargon, like in the trying to conceive community. So what were your feelings like when you had that positive pregnancy test? Well, the first feeling I had is literally days before. And if you've watch my story on TikTok, you know, this days before I got that positive, I was starting to talk to my now husband. And so my first feeling was, oh my gosh, is he like, how is he going to feel about this? Is, are we still going to get this dream, you know, love story with this baby? And that was my first feeling. My second feeling was, oh my gosh, I need to change my life and turn it around and live for Jesus because I now have a human. I can no longer be sleeping around. I can no longer be drinking. Um, and I need to get my mental state under control because it's no longer about me anymore. So those were my top two feelings. And I like how you kind of talked about too, how, you know, getting pregnant made you 
come into perspective and I'm like, wow, like I really have to change because now I have to worry about somebody else. That isn't just me, myself and I. Exactly. Exactly. And honestly, as somebody who were, who works with pregnant women who, um, are in far worse circumstances than you were having that instinct isn't always there. Like they talk about some people truly don't even register that they're pregnant until they are giving birth. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've heard that a lot too. Someone would just check out and especially Mm -hmm. if it's not a planned pregnancy, they almost pretend like, Oh, it'll just go away or, Oh, it's not there. Or I don't need to worry about it until it's physically here. When there's just so much more to that. There's so much more to that. It's very complex. It's it's very, very complex. And it, it is truly different, different for everyone. So I know that you you talked about um your now husband and kind of where he was at at the time that you found out that you were pregnant and kind of where you guys were both together at that time. What was the relationship like with the father of your child at that time? So the relationship with my father of my child was very, he was in a very bad spot. I had met him at a party. I had known him for maybe a few weeks. It was very surface level. Um, and he actually had a previous, I don't know what to call her, baby mama. Mm-hmm. And he was not in her life. Um, and so I kind of saw how he related, how he was in that situation. And then I also saw, I Googled his name because I don't know why I didn't do this before I hung out with him, but I Googled his name now that I was pregnant with his child. And he had some things on his record. And so for my safety, my baby's safety, I thought that in this situation, it was best not to tell him that I was pregnant until, uh, and we can get into that later, but he does know now, but just through my pregnancy and while I was still in the same city as him, I wanted to protect me and protect my baby at all costs. So I didn't tell him um, and we weren't talking every day. So it's not like it was something I had to hide. And I'm sure that that was really hard to, to, deal with all of the emotions of being pregnant and then finding that out about the person who helped create your child. I imagine that that was just extremely stressful and also just more emotions to just pour on top of the other ones that you were feeling at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think my biggest concern was it was less about me and more about the baby. It was like, okay, well, what would be best for baby? And so I definitely let, I was definitely very prayerful during this time because I was like, I want to make the best decision. I don't want to be the person that keeps my child from their father, but I also don't want to be the person that puts my child in harm's way if I could have avoided it. So it's very, uh, it's very a teeter totter to balance. Um, And now looking back, I'm happy with the decision I made to keep it from him during my pregnancy. That's really good. So obviously after you found out you were pregnant, you were probably exploring what's going to be the next steps. Like what is life going to look like for my child? And obviously we know um, if if you've been listening to the podcast thus thus far that you ended up choosing adoption. Was adoption your first choice after finding out you were pregnant? No, it wasn't even on my radar. Um, I was living at Waco, Texas in the time in Waco, Texas at the time. And I didn't have any family around me. Um, all my family was still in Oregon and my mom was in a pretty bad spot. And my stepdad and Jane were, I would say my main source of support. And a few months before I actually conceived, they said like, if you ever get pregnant, like we would, we would probably tell you adoption is what's best side story. But how I told my stepmom is we were planning to call the night that I thought I was pregnant. And she's like, Hey, is 10 minutes. Okay. Like, are you ready to call in 10 minutes? And I just sent her a picture of the test. I was like, well, I'm pregnant. So here you go. I, a majority of people found out that I was pregnant by me sending them a picture because I didn't really have the words to say. When we first talked to them, I think it was like five days after I found out I was pregnant, they were like, you know, like, we truly believe adoption is the best option. 
And it took me a while to get into that. And I remember I was very against it. Like the next week I sent them this angry text. Like, how dare you think I'd be a bad mom? Like it went on and on and on. I was, I mean, I was only five weeks at the time. And so adoption wasn't on my radar until I started watching videos. And I came across this one YouTube video of um, this birth mom and adoptive parents. And it was such a close relationship. And I remember just praying and being like, God, this is what I want. If this is what you want me to do, because I don't want to not be a part of my child's life. I don't want to feel like a burden to adoptive parents or anything like that. So it wasn't on my radar. Well, it was kind of on my radar, but it wasn't something that it was in the back of my mind. Like I would never choose that because I had wanted to be a mom my whole life. Wow. And when, when you talked about kind of God kind of planting that seed, or sometimes it feels like forcing, <laughs> forcing it upon you, especially if it's something hard and you don't want to do it when God kind of introduces something to you. What it reminded me of is like the story in the Old Testament where God's really testing Abraham. And when they're, you know, up on the mountain or up on the hill, he he's like, all right, you're going to sacrifice your son to me because this is what I want you to do. And Abraham was going to follow through with it, even though God's intentions were to never to really to have him sacrifice his son, but to more show if I am telling you something that I want you to do, I need you to follow me no matter what. And it was kind of just that test and the test of that covenant. And that that story or that biblical story just came to my mind as, as you were talking about how God kind of planted that seed for you or kind of tried to lead you, even though it was something that you're like, I want to be a mom. Like, why the heck are you telling me or trying to tell me to do this? It makes no sense. Exactly. exactly. And it's hard for me looking back on it now because I see so many God moments, but when you're in the midst of the pain, mm -hmm. um, and we'll get more into this later. I, if you watch my story on TikTok, you know, I went from being super happy about it to super confident. I was also like a month postpartum, of you know, and to kind of feeling this dip and feeling this anger and resentment. And I've definitely been all over the board, but when you look back and as I, cause I haven't purposely gone back. Cause I was like, I don't want to know that that was your plan. God, I don't want to know that that because then this feeling of unworthiness to be a mom gets set in mm -hmm. and so it's this whole there's so many complex things um but looking back now there's a lot of reasons I ended up choosing adoption but my first my first ever like thought of it was maybe I'll do this because this is an opportunity to make the people around me proud because a lot of my teenage years, like I was talking about, I made decisions that I either didn't fall through with, or I made promises I didn't fall through with, or I made decisions that were in my best interest and nobody else's. So I felt that this was an opportunity to prove to my parents that I was truly selfless. And I don't feel that that was the reason you should make decisions. But at the same mm -hmm. time, overall, I'm glad that I decided to go down this path as hard as it was. And just the, the strength that, that you have is just, again, I, I just don't have words for it. Because like as a woman, it's just, it's such a sacrifice. It is. It is. And thank you. I, I really appreciate that. I think it's just, you know, I feel very blessed the situation I wasn't because I know, like, I don't know how some birth mamas do it mm -hmm. without telling their family. I know birth mamas that literally were pregnant, didn't tell their family at all and just went through with mm -hmm. it and it's never spoken of again. I just can't, like, you, you can't comprehend that. You can't, com I can't comprehend having a child out in the world, never meeting them. Some people are like nurses, take them the second they come out of me. I don't want to see them. I don't want to. And so I'm just very grateful for the support that I had of my family and also the adoptive family. 
of course. And speaking of the the adoptive family, um, what was the process like for you as a birth mother and exploring the option of adoption? I found out I was pregnant at the beginning of October and over Thanksgiving, I went to be with my aunt and uncle and I was probably like 11 weeks pregnant. I was, I was in the depths of my first trimester. And I just remember like talking to my uncle. My uncle has always been somebody of wisdom in my life. And he was like, you know, I believe that adoption is what's best, but I'm going to support you either way. And I love that baby and you no matter what. And to me, that was like, not that my dad and stepmom weren't unsupportive or conditionally loving me. I just never heard the, we're going to like love you and support you no matter what type of peace. So getting that from my uncle was like, okay, it gave me almost peace to release the, the um, pressure of the decision because I'm going to be cared for either way. And so that was super powerful. And I remember just journaling one night and being like, God, like, if this is what you want, these are what, this is what I need in a family. <laughs> and I wrote down five things and I, uh, people have been hounding me on the internet to share these five things. And so I think I'm going to, I'll share them here, but, um, I needed them to be Christian. I needed them to be Jesus loving. You know, if my, if my, if my little, I knew it was a boy, I didn't know, but I knew in my heart it was a boy. Never, never veered from that. Uh, I needed my son to be raised in a Christian family. I needed the mom to be stay at home. I wasn't going to place my son just for him to spend his life in daycare, basically. And like, no shame to anybody who have to make that sacrifice for their kids. I was just given the opportunity to choose how my child was going to be raised. And so that was something that um, I wanted. And then I also wanted them to have went through the adoption process before um, because I had no idea what I was walking into. And I thought like going through with somebody who also didn't know was kind of a setup for like maybe making a mistake in the legalities or whatever. Um, and then I also wanted them to have a child that was also um, of different race than them because I knew my little baby was going to come out. He's, people ask me all this time. He's half white, he's half me, and then he's Puerto Rican and African-American mix. That's what his dad is. And so I wanted him to not feel singled out in that, in that way. And so I think I only mentioned four. I may be spacing the fifth one. But um, when literally a week later, um, my uncle was like, hey, do you want to talk to one of my friends? Which I knew her already. And she had worked closely in the foster care system, not necessarily for adoptive families, but more for resources. And I said, Hey, do you have any resources? Like, you know, I'm a single young mama, like whether that's for parenting or adoption, like, do you have any resources? And she said, well, we have a few families down in Texas, which is where I was living at the time. Would you be interested in talking to them? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And there was a mom she knew that was there. They were active foster parents. Uh, they met all five of my requirements and she's like, is it okay if I just like put your word out there? Like no pressure, but is it okay if I put that we have an expecting mama considering adoption out there? And I was like, sure. Like it's not going to hurt. Right. Like, sure. Sure enough. Like two, 20 minutes later, she sent me this girl's Facebook page. Her name is Abby. And, um, I stalked it for a few days. Um, and then the following week I was like, maybe I should give them a call. So I reached out, got her number and we got on the phone that night. Um, and I remember just talking, their kids weren't on the phone. I, all I knew was what I saw from Facebook and they actually did Facebook like or Facebook. They did social media for a job. So they're a lot like me and a lot of their lives were portrayed on there. So it was really easy to get a good picture of what they're doing. Obviously social media is still pretty fake, but it was easy to get a good picture of, um, an insight into what they did and how they raised their kids and stuff. And so I just remember talking on the phone and the first thing I'm going to get really vulnerable here. The first thing I remember is like, she sounds like the mom I wish I had when I was younger. And like, my mom was an addict when I was younger and it's still like on and off. And so I was like, 
that is such like I want to be a part of your family can you guys adopt me too and so I remember just knowing like if I want to give my son the best chance of life because I wasn't thinking about myself and this is something that I do regret so I wasn't thinking about me or I wasn't thinking about how I was going to do or I wasn't thinking about because I thought so low of myself I was in such a place of low self-esteem that I was like why would my son need me um and so to me he didn't deserve or I didn't deserve him and so I was like, well, if I'm going to have to do this, this is who I want. And so on the end of the call, I remember saying like, okay, I'm good. And they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, you guys want to adopt my baby? And um, I remember that was just like, and again, I had never met him. I just knew what I knew off social media. And some people would say, you know, that's very unwise. It's very whatever. I have a tendency to make decisions and then figure the rest out along the way because I'm very discerning and, um, I don't say that in a prideful way. I said it in like, the Lord has really blessed me with being able to do that. And is adoption hard? Yes. But I can say without a doubt, and I've said this throughout the entire journey, not once have I swayed from this, is I can say without a doubt, this is the best adoptive family that I could have chose. I will never regret who I chose to place my son in. Sorry, that was a whole long rant, but. Oh, no. And it, it gosh, it was so beautiful. It almost made me cry. So <laughs> just. <laughs> no worries just such a beautiful beautiful story and also the connection that you have with the the adoptive mom too is just is just crazy and the feelings that you had towards her and and I know you also kind of shared you know all of these mixed emotions that you had too as you were choosing this option for your baby and I saw you know you always do kind of flashbacks too on your TikTok of Um, during your pregnancy and the the adoptive family they were very supportive during your pregnancy absolutely and it was a little difficult because we lived in Texas when we met actually or I lived in Texas but I moved the first week and so a lot of people don't probably know this but my first phone call on the adoptive parents I was about to leave to go to Arizona to live in a maternity home and I was driving my car by myself and the adoptive mom, Abby was like, who's taking you? And I was like, oh, I, nobody. And she goes, I'll go with you. So our first time meeting was actually her and I going on a like weekend road trip as she dropped me off at my new home. Um, and so, yes, but that they were so supportive despite the long distance, you know, anytime I was at the doctors, they were on FaceTime anytime. Uh, I mean, we talked every day. We probably talked more when I was pregnant than when I now that my son's here it's just as amazing to like to have that kind of support and like love just from another person while you're pregnant is incredible and I know you just also mentioned that when you had moved you moved to a maternity home so what did that look like for you um so it was a maternity home based out of um northern Arizona and um, it worked with, I don't know if anybody is aware of Dream City Church. They kind of have Dream City and Dream Center, all Dream Centers all over um, the United States and so many, that I believe other countries, don't quote me on that. Uh, so they had a Dream City Church and then this specific Dream Center was for young moms. Um, and so it was a four bedroom house. Um, and I was, I think I was the third girl there at the time. Um, and it was, it was just what I needed during pregnancy. Um, I was surrounded with young young moms who got it, especially at a pretty difficult pregnancy. So they understood that. Mm-hmm. Um, and just being around the support. And although the people that were in the other girls that were in the house were way older than me, like in their thirties, and that's not old at all, but like it felt but okay. <laughs> I was like, I was like 18, 19. Yeah. Uh, and both 
the, the people I was with had either one or more kids living with them at the time. And so it was an amazing opportunity. Um, and I recommend it to any single moms who reach out to me through TikTok that live in Arizona because they have, they provide jobs that you can bring your babies to work at that are very like, so you, you basically get to build your life and not feel like your life is over because you unexpectedly got pregnant. And so it was very, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. I'm very, very grateful for where I was at there. And I, it gets a lot of hate on TikTok. That's one of the things that has like zero positive. And I'm like, no, I actually genuinely enjoyed it. And I was the only mom there that placed for adoption when I was there. Mm -hmm. um, and so they did not push that. My decision was already made before I went into the program. I mean, Abby directly brought me to the program. So, um, and I chose that program before I even met Abby. So, Oh, wow. That's incredible. As somebody, again, who, who works with moms, I need to look into these resources for Ohio because that could definitely be an option, especially if I have um, some younger moms that I, that I work with, which I do. I do have yeah. some moms that, that I'm currently working with. Completely cost-free too, which is something that um, was, so it provides shelter and then we, we, we got our own food. That was it. And then they had this amazing system where 80% of our paycheck went into a savings account that we didn't have access to until we graduated the program. And so that's kind of how I was able to move and like set up on my own when I did leave because I had this amazing savings built up. Um, and so, yeah, it was, I'm very, very grateful for that. And so again, you're, you're pregnant, you're getting mm -hmm. your, you know, your regular OB care, all of the appointments, um, did you want to find out the gender beforehand? I know you, you've had the mother's intuition that your baby was a boy, but did you find out the gender before birth? So this is actually kind of a funny story. My first call with Abby and Brenton, the adoptive parents after it, we were kind of texting and I texted them my first ultrasound picture and they were like, do you want to find out? And I was like, well, honestly, I don't have to prepare for this thing. <laughs> it sounds so bad, but I was like, I don't. So um, this is my intuition. I think it's a boy. I know without a doubt it's a boy, but I'm only 11 weeks. There's no scientific, you know, thing. And at that point I hadn't seen an OB yet. Um, like an actual OB. I went to like a pregnancy center when I was like really early, but not OB yet. Cause I was moving and, um, they're like, let's keep it a surprise. So we kept it a surprise up until 24 weeks. I had some like leaking and I went in just to get my like water to see if my water was leaking. Um, and I, they gave me this packet on my bedside table and I was being nosy. I was like, I'm going to read my own file, not thinking anything of it. And on the top, it says mother does not want to know gender of the baby. And then right below it, it says male fetus. And then it had like all these things. And I was like, Abby, I know what it is. And she's like, well, based on how you said that, I know it's a boy. And <laughs> so um, our plan was to keep it a secret, but we kind of all knew it was a boy from the beginning. Like, I don't ever remember thinking like, oh, it could maybe be a girl. I mean, we had a girl name picked out, um, but it was just, that's just kind of how, yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, I guess your intuition was very strong. Again, you have the gift of discernment. <laughs> Prime <laughs> example right there. I hope it's like that for the rest of my babies because I don't want to wait five months to find out. No, it's hard. It is. It is really, really hard. Did you have those sneak peek tests that you can find out like as early as like six weeks? I think sometimes there can be some errors if you're like before, I think it's like 11 weeks or something, but I've known people that have done it and it's been accurate. I know one of my moms that I'm working with right now for my job was telling me that they wanted to do one of those tests like just the other day. So 
Yeah, I don't know. I've heard 50-50 on those things. I'll probably, with my next babies, just get it done during blood when we do genetic testing at, like, I think 11 and 12 weeks. Yeah, it's about 12 it. weeks. The yeah. The test, yeah. Mm-hmm. But you used to have to wait till your anatomy scan. Yes, <laughs> which is a lot. I don't know how moms wait till the end of birth. I truly, I truly don't, but... <laughs> it's hard that was my my mom did with me and of course she had me in 1994 and with her insurance it actually didn't cover like the scan to find out gender so she didn't know I was going to be a boy or a girl and it wasn't her choice obviously because it wasn't covered by insurance and they were a lot more expensive back then yeah. but by the time my brother was born like six and a half years later they <laughs> that was covered so she didn't find out with him <laughs> That's funny. I didn't even realize that. Oh yeah. Medicine has changed. It's crazy. No, it is. It is. And I know you mentioned that your, your pregnancy was difficult. Like it, it was hard. And of course, pregnancy is really hard, but it's a different experience for everybody. What was the remainder of your pregnancy like for you leading up to your delivery? Yeah. So I'll kind of also go back to first trimester because I didn't really touch on that. But after I found out I was pregnant, I mean, I was sick 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 it was very hard to keep things down I I was actually went into the ER a few times for like passing out due to dehydration because I couldn't keep anything down um and that kind of settled around like you know the normal 13 14 15 weeks which I was very grateful for um overall I think my decision because I made my decision to do adoption so early on I felt the weight of that decision in my pregnancy uh and kind of how I describe it is this is the best analogy it feels like somebody handed me in a million dollar check and then told me to keep it safe for nine months and they expect it back in perfect condition. And it's like, like, that's a lot of responsibility. And, um, but I was in the triage, that's what's called triage, like 60 plus times. And I had Medicaid. So I was like, I don't even worry, <laughs> worry about it. Um, but I also lived right across the street from the hospital. So the tiniest of things I was like, I got to go make sure this baby is okay. Cause it's not mine. And looking back, I wish that I was more in tune with my mother, mother's intuition Um, I was just so scared for this baby and I was so scared to let the adoptive parents down. And so um, I definitely like at 26 weeks, I stopped wearing, I could only wear my Birkenstocks because my feet were so swollen. Um, The amount of times I got tested for like gestational uh, diabetes or not gestational diabetes, maybe it is um, preeclampsia. That's what it is. um, Was insane. I never had it. I was just so swollen. Apparently I'm just one. I swell up like, like Kim Kardashian. That's who I look like when I'm pregnant. I just swell up like crazy. And, um, and so that was really hard because being on my feet was hard. Um, I know I've posted pictures. If you guys want to go see those on my TikTok, they were something else. Um, and then towards the end, I was like 35 weeks when I ended up getting kidney stones. And so the last few months or the last few weeks of my pregnancy, I had adoptive mom come at 35 and a half, 36 weeks, because I was like, I don't know when this baby's going to come. I'm about to get this baby out of me myself because they couldn't, the kidney stones were too big to pass, but the baby's head was in the way. So they couldn't go laser them. So they're basically got to wait for birth. And so I'm pretty sure I passed the baby and the kidney stones at the same time, but that made the last few weeks of pregnancy very, very difficult. Um, and emotionally it was hard because I didn't know how to prepare. I was so focused on preparing emotionally for birth, surrendering my baby that I wasn't really thinking about the physicality and it hit me like a train and we can talk more about postpartum later, but yeah. So I, overall, I truly believe that a lot of the reason my pregnancy was stressful was because of my choice to place for adoption. And I believe that going forward, my pregnancies will be a lot different knowing I get to take that baby home. And so, yeah, I physically, I didn't have, I mean, the kidney stones and the nausea were probably my biggest things. Um, but 
overall, I think just the stress of carrying somebody else's baby got to me because I was overthinking every little symptom. That's a perspective too, that I don't think a lot of people think about like, like the stress. And then what you talked about, um, the pressure of I'm carrying this baby inside of me. And not only is it a human that I'm responsible for, and that I have to keep safe inside of me, but I need to make sure nothing goes wrong. Otherwise, you know, you're going to have that guilt, even though it wouldn't be your fault anyway, you know, yeah. it always being 2020 because I'm, I'm giving my child to another family and gifting them with, with my baby. So that is a lot of pressure that I'm sure other people never even think about when they think about adoption and like what it's like for the birth mother during pregnancy. Yeah, absolutely. And when I was little, I actually wanted to be a surrogate. And so when I was going through this process, I almost thought about it that way because it kept me from getting attached, which you still get attached no matter how hard you try. That's why I struggle with, I don't know if I could be a surrogate again because that pressure was just like, and the adoptive parents had nothing to do with this pressure. Mm -hmm. Um, They were so very kind and so very loving through the whole process. Uh, I think it was just my own, you know, I'm also a perfectionist, very type A. And so thinking of this, I'm delivering you this gift. And if it's not perfectly wrapped and perfectly okay and perfectly healthy and doesn't cost you more money in hospital bills, that's going to be what, you know, I get praised for. And it was this very, it was not, if I could go back and do it, there was a lot of different things I would change about my perspective and, and my, um, I don't know how to say it, just like my relationship with the pregnancy, if that makes sense. Oh, a hundred percent. And again, type A girly over here. So I can hundred percent relate with you in, in that regard and can imagine, you know, if I was in your shoes, oh my gosh, I would have been the same way mm-hmm. because when you're a perfectionist, everything has to go to your plan. Otherwise it's a catastrophe. And that's just what it feels like. Exactly. And I'm also a people pleaser. So I was like, this baby is to please people. And so, um, and that's why I was so stuck on my decision. I, I don't think I really talked about this on TikTok, but anybody during my pregnancy, he was like, Hey, I just want to like, let you know, this is going to be hard or you can make a different decision. I was like, don't even talk to me. Like Mm -hmm. I made my decision. I'm going through with this, you know, it's going to make everybody happy in the end, even if it's not myself. And so, yeah, we're, we're working on that people pleasing and it's gotten a lot better. So it's hard. I'm a recovering people pleaser myself and it's hard, but you sound like it's a journey that you're already taking and you're doing a great job. So again, that's awesome. And again, you can always be like, yo, I got the gift of discernment. Like, I don't need your opinion. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Just Lord tame my tongue to say that in a nice way. Cause I also, I'm very all or nothing. And so I'm either like quiet little people pleaser, or I'm like, get out of my way. Like, don't talk to me. And so learning how to speak up for myself, but also be respectful is, has also been a journey. Oh, a hundred percent. So your birth story. So what was the delivery process like for you? Of course, if you, again, if you tune into her TikTok, you know that the adoptive parents were there and they were very active in your active <laughs> delivery when you were in active labor. But what was that like for you? Um, so I'll do my best without taking up like way too much time, but I actually loved labor and delivery. Uh, which is why I want to go on to have many, many more children. Um, pregnancy wasn't my favorite, but labor and delivery, I loved. And I was at the point in my pregnancy where I was like, get, at the beginning of my pregnancy, I was like, I don't want an epidural. I don't want an induction. I want to do this naturally. But because of all the swelling and everything, my midwife was basically like, we bet we, at first I had a midwife, but they were like, Hey, I think it's best if you go with an OB. And I was like, okay. So we switched to an OB, I think like six, seven months through my pregnancy. 
Um, and it wasn't my favorite because obviously the visits were short and whatnot, but at the same time, I was so miserable. I was like, get this baby out of me. And so at my 38 week appointment, I was so miserable. I was like, what about induction? Like they, I had them sweep my membranes at 38 weeks and three days. Yeah. And, um, there was nothing. I was dilated to like a half of a one. They, they called me a fingertip dilation. Like they, it wasn't one, but I was probably just to give me hope. I was probably completely close, but they probably just were like, just wanted to give me hope. And I was like, I am so ready for this baby to get out of me. And it wasn't even, I was definitely physically exhausted, but it was more so I am ready. This is going to be the worst day of my life. And I'm ready to get it over with. That was kind of my mindset because when you're preparing for something, you know, when you go through grief and, um, you lose someone, yes, you're preparing. If it's like the end of a life or you see it coming. Um, but you almost want to get it over with. You're like, let's just get it over with. Um, cause I, I, I didn't want to continue to anticipate this day. So I remember at 38 weeks and three days, my doctor was like, and we lived in Sholo, Arizona. And so the air pressure was, it was very high elevation. So they actually were basically against elective inductions just because of, um, baby's lungs because they wanted baby's lungs to be as fully developed as possible. And they also didn't have a very, um, they only had a stage uh, level two um, nursery. So they didn't have the means to help if lungs were, you know, and the closest big city was Phoenix, which is about three hours away. And my whole delivery, I wanted to deliver in Phoenix, but I didn't want to drive three hours in labor. And also the house mom of my maternity home was like, I think it's better if you just stay up here and you're in the same space. So anyways, 38 weeks, three days, they stripped my membranes. And they were like, you know, we can talk to the hospital about a possible elective induction. We see you're in a lot of pain. And I was not a fan of my OB. <laughs> it was this whole thing. Um, and of course, the next day we call, we're like, hey, did they get us on the schedule? We called the hospital and they're like, no, your OB has not called us. And I was, I remember me and adoptive mom were so, we, we like cried our way through Safeway because we just like, we're like, I'm miserable. She's miserable that I'm miserable. It was like this whole thing. And, um, eventually we called and the doctor I was working with I worked with mom doc it's kind of like a they have multiple clinics across Arizona and they were like we can get you an appointment down in Phoenix and so we're gonna refer you down there because we don't have another appointment available till next week and I was like well, okay great so the day before I would turn 39 weeks adoptive mom and I went down to Phoenix and we were just praying praying that they would induce me um and so we packed up all our stuff just adoptive mom and I and my stepmom was planning on flying in for postpartum. She wasn't, her goal wasn't to make the birth, but she was planning on being there for postpartum. And then my aunt and uncle lived in Phoenix as well. So adoptive mom and I drove down and they swabbed me and they were like, you're like right on the edge of being okay for an induction, but because of the kidney stones and because of the amount of pain, we're going to go ahead and induce you tomorrow morning. And I have never been so happy in my life. Um, so the next morning we went in at 5am for an induction and they started me on Cytotec, I believe. It's just the little thing that goes under your tongue um, and starts to soften your cervix. Cause again, I was only like one centimeter um, and only like 40% of phased. And so I was very closed up um, because it was my first baby. I was young and I was also very nervous. They started me on that. I went on like four rounds of that. And then they started Pitocin at like 3 p.m. Um, and I was, I went in contracting regularly. They're like, no, you're contracting pretty regularly. Like you're good. And what sucked is though I had GBS. And so they had to give me, um, the antibiotics. So I had an IV in me the entire time I was there, which was, I, so I couldn't move around freely. Like I wanted to, um, and then they put Pitocin in me and then, um, 
I was like, oh, okay, goodness. And, but they put me on the lowest dose because I was already contracting. And so I was on a very low dose. Contractions were very manageable. Um, and then around 4 p.m., I remember they asked me, they were like, do you want to do the Foley balloon? And some hospitals still have it and some don't. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Foley balloon, um, but it's basically like a balloon that they stick in you. And once you reach four centimeters, it naturally falls out. So it's basically just constant pressure on your cervix. And I was like, yes, because to me, that was less intervention, less medication. And I was already hooked up to like antibiotics and Pitocin and all this other stuff. I was like, just, yes, I, don't, I would rather do that than up my Pitocin. And so I'm such a go-getter that I was like, my goal is to get this fully balloon out. Cause if it's not out in 12 hours, they have to take it out and kind of start from scratch. And so I was like, my goal is to get this thing out. Um, I contracted through the night contractions started to get more intense, but I, between the birthing ball and then luckily they had waterproof monitors, which not all hospitals have. And that was the best pain relief ever was sitting in the tub and adoptive mom and adoptive dad switched. So everybody kind of went home. My uncle went home. Um, but adoptive mom and adoptive dad kept switching. One would stay asleep and then one would just basically make sure I didn't fall asleep in the tub and then hold the hot water on my belly. And that helped so much. I had worship music playing. Um, I had a doula that was willing to drive the three hours from where we originally were, which I was so grateful for. That was another thing. I didn't want to go to Phoenix because I'd lose my doula, but she was amazing and drove and made a weekend trip. Um, yeah, the, the water was absolutely amazing. And then I remember getting back into bed and then feeling like this pressure and I had to go to the bathroom. And at that point there was no nurses, there was nothing. So I just got up and went and unplugged myself and sure enough, it was the fully balloon. And I remember a lot of blood coming with that. And that was scary because I hadn't seen blood since way before I was even pregnant. And so I remember that kind of made me really scared but luckily we got baby back on the monitor and I was okay and then that was the first time I felt like real relief I was able to kind of sleep and this was like four-ish in the morning I was sleeping and then um I woke up to a huge kick my son kicked me and then I like and then they were also like adjusting the monitors he was a movie baby so they were in there every 20 minutes adjusting the monitors because he did not want to stay on the monitors and so I remember feeling this huge kick and like almost crunching up and in that moment why water broke and I was very grateful my water broke naturally. I was terrified to get my water broken because those needles are terrifying. Um, <laughs> but um, it was the most intense. I was like, oh, that's what it feels like. So yeah, the five times this earlier the week that I was in the hospital thinking my water broke, I just peed myself. Like that's what it feels like. So now I know what it feels like. Um, and sure enough, my water broke. And that's when things kicked up a notch. At that point, I was only, I tried my best to refuse as many cervical exams as possible. They were super uncomfortable for me. And I know that's not everybody's experience, but they were super uncomfortable for me. And so I didn't, if I, if I was there until I had a baby and it didn't really matter to me. Um, and I had them check me then. And I was at like a six and a half, I think. And at this point I'd been at the hospital for 24 hours. So I wasn't in active labor for 24 hours. Um, I mean, I was definitely like, I was getting exhausted because I hadn't slept. And I remember laboring without the water was like without my water intact was so much more painful and so they tried to get me baby was also flipped so he was study side up which was causing a lot of pressure on my back um and I remember just screaming in pain like screaming through the contractions trying to breathe through them and that's when everybody got woken up and that's when everybody came back um and I remember they had me flip on my hands and knees to try to flip him and that's when I knew I needed more pain management because I was so exhausted that I couldn't even hold myself up. And I said, it was less for pain management and more for, I need to sleep before I have to push this baby out. Um, because I'm not going to be able to have the strength to push this baby out if I don't get some rest. And so 
I remember being like, okay, can I have some, they had nitrous oxide. Well, apparently they were out. So then I was like, I, the adoptive parents always make fun of me because I was in so much pain. And then I stopped very quietly in between contractions. I was like, can I have the epidural now? Like apparently I was super sweet because I wanted them to be nice to me. And I also wanted them to come fast. So I was like, I need to be as nice as possible to get them here. Um, and I'm very grateful. They let the adoptive mom in the room while I got my epidural. I remember just screaming through contractions because staying still. Uh, I actually had to get two epidurals because the first one only numbed my left side. And so I got my second epidural that finally worked around, I think like 7 38 AM of the following day. Um, and that was glorious from eight to like 11 AM. I slept, <laughs> I just slept. I got rest. People were coming in and out. I was just, that was my main goal. And then I woke up at like 1130 ish. And I said, I feel like I have, like, I feel like you, you guys put another Foley balloon in me. Like I thought they put another Foley balloon. They're like, no, we didn't put another Foley balloon. I was like, no, I swear you guys did. And they checked me and I was at a 10. <laughs> and that's when I think all the emotions hit. And I was like, well, first of all, thank you for the epidural because I was able to get rest, which let my body relax. And I think fully dilate, even though that wasn't my plan. I'm very grateful I got that. Um, and that's when all the emotions hit me. I started to get very emotional. Um, I kind of had my uncle come in the room because I was like, okay, this is like, this is happening. This is real. But until you're there being told you're about to push a baby out, it doesn't feel real. Um, and I remember just being very emotional. Also, I had the labor shakes, which were awful. It feels like you have like the worst flu ever. Cause I was like nauseous, but I couldn't throw up. So my doula and my uncle were kind of by my side and then adoptive mom came in and out and my stepmom had just landed. And at first, when she first landed, I was asleep and Abby texted her. She's like, she's only at a six. You have, you have a few hours, like settle into your hotel. Sure enough, she texts her. She's like, Hey, she's out of time. She's about to start pushing. And again, my stepmom wasn't planning on being at the birth, but I'm very grateful she was. And my uncle, I remember my uncle asked me, he was like, Hey, how can I support you during labor? I was like, well, if my stepmom's not there, I'd like you there for emotional support. And I remember my stepmom arrived and the relief on his face that he could leave. I was like, Oh, I don't think you wanted to be here for that anyways. Um, I had during those pushing, because obviously like the first few hours of pushing, you're only with your nurses. It was very, if you go back on my TikTok and look at photos, we had so much, like we were laughing. I was making jokes. I, I was honestly having a really good time. I think also I was forcing myself to kind of be funny and laugh because I didn't know the pain. I used humor as a coping mechanism. And so I knew that the amount of, emo I didn't know what to expect, but I knew what was to, to expect was going to be hard. And so I was kind of like trying to laugh my way through it. And then sure enough, three hours later, I did push for three hours, but it didn't feel like that. It went by like so quickly. Um, and they, they were like, do you want a mirror? And I thought they were going to hand me like this handheld mirror. Now they rolled in like a full length, like six foot mirror. And everybody was there. Adoptive mom, adoptive dad, doula, stepmom. Everybody was looking at the mirror. And I was like, this is lovely. But I liked it because I got to it was actually motivation for me to keep pushing. And I'm also a go-getter and I have a history of weightlifting. And so every push, I was like, I'll push one more, one more contraction, one more. And, and then once he was out, he got laid on my belly. At first I wanted him on adoptive mom, but they said they couldn't do that. And he came out kind of having a hard time breathing. And so, and they could tell he was very purple when he got out. You can see the photos. Um, it was very emotional. I just kind of leaned back, tried not to look at him, but I held his head um because they just put him they didn't put him on my chest so he wasn't like right here he was more so like right on my stomach and it was just a very it was a moment that I almost took a big breath like okay pregnancy is over and that to me was relieving um because it felt like all this buildup I was like okay he's here I can like relax now um and then they took him over
over and then um to like the little bed area and then he had to go to the NICU for just like an hour very short time by the time he was out of the NICU I was get, still, still getting stitched up so it was very small time so adopted mom and adopted dad went with him doula and stepmom stayed with me that's why I'm very grateful for doula and my stepmom because I love the adopted mom and she's such a great support but I knew in that moment she'd be there for baby and I needed my own support system and so um yeah, they stitched me up. They, they gave me a placenta tour. I don't know if that's a thing for everybody, but that was very interesting to me, but also very cool. Yeah. Then they transferred me to my postpartum room. And I talked about this a little bit in my video, but that was really hard um, going, being wheeled to a room without my baby. And then once I was in my postpartum room, um, that's when nurses and adopted mom came in and I got to hold my son for the first time. So that's just a little bit of my birth story. Um, I'm, I love birth and I will do it again many times, probably. Um, and knowing how much I loved it, despite the difficulties of it, uh, I just know how much more enjoyable it's going to be next time knowing I get to bring that little blessing home. Oh, wow. Well, again, thank you for sharing your birth story because for, for some people it's something so intimate and sometimes honestly traumatic that they, that they can't talk about it or they can't even process it for, for a long time. So thank you for, for sharing it. And I love how you compared it to like weightlifting too, because that's so true. It is the biggest workout you will ever go through. Yes. Whether you have a C-section, a natural delivery, a home birth, you are a superhero, no matter how your baby gets to this world. And it is, it is the biggest marathon you will ever run. I got to deadlift or squat that baby out. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> oh, I love it. So you're in the, so you're in the postpartum room and now you're on your journey with postpartum with the adoption process in the hospital, what did that look like for you yeah. as a birth mother? Um, so in my birth plan, I made it specific, like, please, or I, I communicated it into my birth plan with to nurses and stuff, but I also community communicated it to everybody that I plan on being there is I don't want to be left alone in a room, not because I was going to do anything, but I didn't want to make myself susceptible or vulnerable to nurses coming in and making comments. And, and so you could definitely tell obviously I was there for a while. So I got, went through a lot of nurses. Some nurses were very like, what's the heck, what the heck is going on? Like, this is weird. And some nurses were just very supportive. Some nurses were very much more like for me than Abby and would almost get mad if I, if they were like, do you want this intervention? And I'd look to Abby. Um, they were like, well, it's your decision. I'm like, yeah, but I also don't want to, Abby and I have the relationship where there's a lot of respect. And so those big decisions like vaccines and all those things, I look to her um, and people don't understand that. And so I'm very grateful that the actual nurse I delivered with and then my postpartum nurse was very, very um, accepting of that uh, caseworker because every hospital has a social worker. And so I had to work with her a little bit just because of signing consent forms like, okay, because, you know, there's two hospital bracelets. So I get one and Abby gets one. Um, and then like, can they go home with the baby? Things like that I did have to work with. And she was, she was pretty um, understanding. She was pretty cold, um, but it wasn't hurtful in the way of like, oh, I'm going to miss my baby. It was more so like, can't you just understand this so you can make this process easier? I was very much so like, don't talk about it rather than like, looking back, I wish more people asked questions like, hey, like we can provide you resources if you want to do this. Not necessarily because I'd take them, but because I wanted, I wish I was more informed. Um, but in the moment I was so like stuck on my decision. I was like, do not talk to me about anything else um, I want. And so the the less that they, um, talked about the adoption, the easier it was. It also makes me sad too, because I hear, I hear this a lot. Again, I work 
I work with pregnant and postpartum moms. So um, just how hospitals, I mean, again, I'm sorry to all the people who work in healthcare, but I'm sure that you're going to snap to this. They just don't have person-centered care. They don't. It's all about their process and how they can get their paperwork done and get you out the quickest that you can. And again, I hear this from my medical director at my job too, who's worked in a hospital. And it just makes me so sad because I feel like if you work in labor delivery, your number one plan or your number one motive should be working with the mother on her birth plan and making her comfortable and providing her the best person-centered care. And sadly in the United States, it's not like that. But again, I can make a whole podcast on that. So that's a topic for another day. (laughs) No, you're so right about that. And there's definitely like, again, like every nurse was different Mm -hmm. uh, because I mean, it's hard a nurse you're bringing your own values into mm-hmm. a workspace that you can't speak of um and so I mean I'd have a hard time being a nurse like it would be hard it would genuinely be hard for me to watch a birth mama give birth and so like who knows their own situation so I just gave them a lot of grace because I was like I don't know what you've been through you could be a birth mom for all I know exactly you know? and so but it is very like structured you know like right I, as I got to my postpartum room luckily they put us in rooms right next to each other so I could walk back and forth but anytime I walked back and forth I felt bad like the nurse's station was like right there and I would walk back and forth and they'd like look at me and I'm like okay like I'm I'm his biological mom like I can go in there mm-hmm. um, and so I just hoped and prayed before we went in there that like they would see that the relationship between Abby and I would speak for itself and they wouldn't feel like birth moms by the way if you know a birth mom or anything, we naturally feel like a burden, no matter how um, amazing, like my adoptive parents are amazing. They've never did anything to make me feel like a burden. I just naturally felt like a burden. And so like I texted her before I went in, I was, I was like, can I come into your room and say hi to Briar or whatever? That's my son's name, by the way, Briar. And like, um, but the nurses were like, uh, what are you doing? Like you place this baby. Why, why would you be there? And like, the first thing they said was like, okay, well, here's the pills that stops you from lactating. And I'm like, who said that? Like, who said I didn't want to pump? Who said, and it wasn't necessarily that I wanted that. It was just the assumption that I wanted to close off and move on and, um, pretend that this never happened. Um, and so even when I went in there for his first bath, they kind of looked at adoptive mom, like, do you want her here? Like, and I was like, I literally just birthed this child. <laughs> I'm watching him give his first bath. And so you're so right with just like, it's not person centered. Um, and adoption is, although it's so like, once I've entered TikTok and entered into the adoption world, it's so much more, like, it's so much more around us than we see. It's just so taboo. And I think that the more we norm, I don't want to, I don't want to ever normalize it because it stems from brokenness. However, I do want people to be aware um, of the things they say, because, you know, it could be, it could be so hurtful and you never know what that person has been through. And a lot of people that I've talked to through the internet, people have reached out to me that I followed. They were like, Hey, I'm a birth mom. I'm like, you were They're like, yeah, I've just never talked about it. And so just knowing, because we get so, you know, adoptive parents are so praised because they saved a kid, you never know what is on the other side of that. And that's why sharing my story has been so important to me because when I tell people I'm a birth mom, I'm like, oh, like, were you on drugs? And it's like some people that is their story, but that's not my story. And so I think it's such a taboo thing and such a society just pushes the such negative narrative on birth moms, which is why I speak out the way I do. Um, And I think that 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 goes for hospitals as well. Like they have accepted the same societal norms, which I think would save a lot of um, a lot of more family preservation would happen if that wasn't the case. Sorry, I just went on a whole rant, but 
<laughs> no, I'm snapping to all of it. I mean, again, for my job, I've done trainings with hospital staff doing anti-stigma work. And that's exactly what you're doing is you're destigmatizing adoption and birth moms. And I think that it's absolutely incredible. And it goes to show, you know, not every person who places their baby up for adoption is a terrible person or they're doing terrible things in their life or yeah, that they're doing substances. That's not the story for everybody. So we need to break down the walls and realize you're human. Like you're still a mother. You're a birth mother. Mother is in that phrase. Like you deserve the same respect, if not a little bit more than the adoptive parents for what you did. Thank you. I appreciate that. And that is something that like, I very, I've just done my best to explain to people. And it's, it's very hard walking it out every day. Like when I was pregnant, it was kind of hard. And I honestly didn't speak unless spoken to when I was pregnant, because people were like, Oh, how is, you know, how far along are you? And I don't, I never went into the story unless people asked because it was just so, so hard. But now that I'm postpartum, you know, even the people I work with directly, they're like, Oh, do you want kids someday? And I'm like, yeah, but I like, I almost don't really want to get into the story. So I don't want to say I already have a child. You know, I almost want to pretend that that never happened when that's almost in my mind, disrespectful to my son, because I don't want him to ever feel like I'm just pretending he never happened or pretending I don't want anything to do with him. And the biggest misconception that I've found now speaking out about my story is like, Oh, I didn't want the responsibility. And it's like, no, not at, not at all. I would almost like argue that the pain of placing your baby is more painful and more exhausting than staying up all night feeding and doing diaper changes and raising. Um, and so <laughs> it is, and, and, and I, I will get into that later of how I responded to people on TikTok, but you can't argue with everybody because everybody has a different opinion. Again, and we'll, we'll get into it, but every negative comment that you get on TikTok, I always just want to be like, you need to leave her alone, <laughs> like protective over you. But um, because again, people are just so ruthless and then they just talk and they have no idea what they're talking about. They're only seeing like not even one side. They're seeing one speck of your life in the situation and making judgment. And it, it's just, it's hurtful even to just watch sometimes. But postpartum, it, yes, the adoption and the adoptive family now took, took Briar home. What was that process like for you, especially, you know, you have an open adoption. What did that look like between Briar, the adoptive family and you? So um, Briar was released from the hospital later than I was. And so um, the day after I gave birth, I was dismissed to go home, but he had some jaundice that he had to kind of work out. And so um, he didn't get to go home right away. And so that was probably hard leaving my baby at the hospital, but I knew that I needed to kind of go home and figure out my, my stuff. I was definitely, um, yeah. And postpartum, like I said earlier, hit me harder because I was preparing so much emotionally. I forgot that like all that comes with just normal, like physicality of postpartum. And so my stepmom and I drove back up the mountain. Like I said, I delivered three hours away from where I lived. And so the day after birth, we drove up there, we got settled. My stepmom, she rented an Airbnb for the week because again, I lived in a maternity home. And so going right back into a home where moms could have their babies would have been really, really difficult. And she was kind of that emotional backbone for me that week. And I'm so very grateful. So we drove up, we got groceries, we got settled into our Airbnb. Um, and she also, I love, I love my stepmom. She's so holistic. She brought all the things to like reduce lactation. And, you know, she has the heating pad and the castor oil and the cabbage and like all the things. And so having that, but also she's an amazing emotional support 
was just exactly what I needed. And so we went back up the mountain and it was hard because I hadn't, I wasn't able to see my baby for a few days because he was, because of his jaundice levels. And so those first few days were hard. I remember day three postpartum, I delivered on a Saturday, that Monday is when it really hit me. I just was like bawling and like, this is so, so beyond difficult. And I, I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be. And, but, but my relationship with the adoptive parents, they were so, so kind. And so, so I didn't let them see my pain right away. And the reason I didn't let them see my pain is because I was scared they were going to be scared that I was going to back out. And I didn't ever want to give them a reason to think that. And so I very much, which was hard because me and the adoptive mom almost became best friends. I mean, we had just spent every day for the last month together because she came up at 35 weeks and I delivered at 39 weeks. And it was very, it was very hard to hide that emotion. Um, and then on day, let's see, on that Wednesday is when my lawyer came. So in Arizona, the you have to wait 72 hours post birth to sign any rights away. Again, like I'm still wrestling all like, you know, you go back and you're like, how did I do this? What did, what was happening? What influenced this decision? Why was it so easy? The day I signed the papers was actually really easy. And I don't know if it's because in my mind, I already made up a decision or if I was blocking out the emotion I was really feeling. Um, but I remember showing up just like a mess. I was like bleeding and like my milk had come in that day and it was just like, very hard and I wasn't really thinking about the words she was saying obviously I probably should have because they're all legal documents but I have them all so I know what they say now but I was just she was just like you know like are you sure you want to go through with like this and like this is this is how it is and my stepmom was there there with me and I felt that like my stepmom and my lawyer were both great through the situation I just almost wish I asked for a minute alone to really process what was happening because it is a big decision, whether you're wanting to go through with it or not, whether you feel pressured or not, whether you're actually fit to be a mother or not, it's a very, very big decision. And it's not something in the state of Arizona, there's no, there's no revoke period, re- revocable period. I don't know. But, um, and how those papers work is they're irrevocable, but they don't go into play until the termination hearing. And so, and it was an ICPC adoption. So there was a lot of legalities. ICPC is interstate compact. So because we were going over Arizona to um, Texas, there was a lot of legalities. I had to have a lawyer in Arizona. They had to have a lawyer in Texas, yada, yada, yada. And um, so I just signed the papers and moved on. And then that next day, adoptive mom and baby finally came up. And we thought that they were going to be there for like two or three weeks because we didn't know how long the ICPC process was going to take because she had to be cleared to go home. It took less than 24 hours. And I remember when I walked into the, the Airbnb that I was staying with them at when I was really pregnant, same Airbnb she took Briar home to, because um, her husband and kids had to all go home for like school and work and stuff. And so she was just planning on staying there with baby until they got cleared to go over, over state. And I just remember her telling me that they got cleared to go home and they were going to go home tomorrow. And I just remember that's when it like hit me. And I was like, Jane, I have to go. Jane's my stepmom. I was like, I have to go home or we have to go back to the Airbnb. Like I can't be here tonight. This is really hard. So I'm going to try not to cry, but um, that's just kind of when it all hit me. I was like, they're leaving. And so we helped them pack up the next day and we got them on the plane. Um, and it was just something that I was like, this is, this is what is, you know, you it ha- all happened so fast in less than a week. I gave birth, I surrendered my baby. And then I, you know, signed papers to really surrender my baby. Um, and then now you're leaving. Like this thing that I've carried and in nine months I'm saying bye to, and it was almost easier to actually say bye to Jade or say bye to Abby or easier to say bye to Briar than Abby 
because Abby, I had spent this whole time with, and there was that fear, even though in the back of my mind, like I knew Abby and Bridget were never going to leave me in my mind. I was like, am I ever going to see you again? Am I ever going to speak to you again? Are you just going to up and leave? Um, because now knowing, I didn't know this at the time, but now knowing, um, open adoptions are not, um, what's the word? Like, I can't, I could take them to court if I had, if I could, if I wanted to. However, most birth moms don't have the money to just go hire a great lawyer and fight. And so they can make an accusation about me. And if I didn't have the money to fight that, that that's it. That option's closed. And so it, I think that was probably really hard. Um, but so surprisingly, I'm just going to kind of talk about the first few weeks. Surprisingly, I was doing really well. So they left on Friday. And my stepmom did a really good job of just like, let's watch some funny movies. Like, what do you need? Do you need to process it? She was so very kind. And like, I told my birth story where she, well, she wrote it out while it was still so fresh in my mind. She was cooking me amazing, nourishing foods. And then that Monday is when it really hit me because then Jane left and I went back to my maternity home. And I remember just like looking, I was like, why do you get your baby? And I don't. And in my mind, like, I tried so hard to be humble, but in my mind, I was like, I there's no reason why my baby shouldn't be with me. And so seeing everybody else get to be with their babies, I think is what was, was really, really hard. Um, but again, luckily like adoptive mom was so kind and we FaceTimed so often. Um, and I got to see my son, um, but it was definitely, it was definitely, it was a both joy and grief because I saw this family and how happy they were, but they were only happy due to my grief. And so there was a lot of this what if situations that I started to question like, oh, Abby and Bridget, are they still going to support me now? Like they did when, during my pregnancy or were they just doing that for a baby, you know? And so that's when I started to kind of spiral. Postpartum was definitely very hard, especially since my main coping mechanism was working out and you can't do that when you're postpartum. And so I didn't know where to kind of put my pain. So I did a lot of journaling, a lot of praying, and a lot of worshiping. And that's kind of how I got through the first few months. What you shared is extremely important because adoption isn't black and white. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people view it that way. They view it as like this either, oh, this beautiful thing, or there is, of course, as you know, especially on TikTok with the adoptive community, there's also a lot of negative, like, oh, it's like a form of human trafficking, or you hear all of this negative, but there there's a lot of stuff in the middle. Like there, there's a lot of grief. There's a lot again, of the things that you talked about, there's all kinds of these different experiencing experiences and emotions that you were feeling and they're all valid. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that it's so much more complex than people make it out to be. And I think as humans, we try to black and white everything because it's easier for our mind to com comprehend. Um, and I was the same way up until this situation, the Lord really was like, you got to learn how grief and joy can coexist. Because if you can't, you're not going to get anywhere. Like even growing up, I was like, well, I either had a traumatic childhood or a happy childhood. And it's like, no, there was parts that had both. And so learning how to, as I had a counselor that said, it's not and, or, or it's not, or it's both. And it's how to hold that both. And you can feel this and feel this. And then that's okay. And giving myself that permission. Cause again, like we'll talk more about TikTok comments, but you're so forced to feel the same way consistently that's not how God created us. We're going to flex and move, and especially through grief. Grief is not linear. It is not linear. In fact, I was doing better two weeks postpartum than I was doing four months postpartum. And I think, I think just learning to accept that and giving ourselves permission to feel what we need to feel, um, 
is kind of how we move through it and move through it quicker than if we were just black and white because we're never we're, we're not robots and so giving ourselves that permission is um I think really powerful now all of that that is so so good and I love how you talked about grief and joy coexisting but um again just thank you so much for just sharing all of the different emotions that you felt during that time. And I know now you do get to do, you get to do a lot of FaceTimes with, yes. with Abby and then, then your son, and then you were able to do one longer visit. And then of course you had the very short visit in Texas, I think like a month or two ago when you finalized the adoption, but how has that process been going? It's been good. Um, honestly, things look a lot different now than I thought they would when I was pregnant. And that's simply because I got married <laughs> when I was pregnant. I was like, because Abby and Bridget were my main source of support, I was like, I'm going to spend every Christmas and every Easter and da, 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 da. But now I'm married. So things look a lot different. Um, but my first visit was so, I think we both, both me and the adoptive parents went into it. Um, not hesitant, but definitely like, okay, let's be prepared to work through some roadblocks. You know, let's be prepared to, um, I didn't know how they were going to do. When I walked into it, I was like, am I going to have to ask to hold him? Do I have to ask to pick him up? Because to me, it's a very weird thing. Like, he, he's biologically mine. I don't know if you've seen pictures of him, but he's copy and paste of me. And so it's like, how do I how do I navigate that? But also respect Abby as mom. Because she is her his mother. She is the one who has been caring for him these last three months when I was going to this visit. And so I walked in very just like, you know, I don't know. But the Lord was so... It almost like I reunited with Abby like never before. It was like, okay, because anytime when I was pregnant, I got to see her, it was so exciting and saying goodbye to her was so hard because we genuinely did build this beautiful friendship, which in a way, a lot of people could be unhealthy for a lot of birth mom and adoptive moms. But for me, it was something I really needed. And so it was like being with my best friend again and then almost like sharing a baby. I don't know how to like <laughs> describe it, but it was like, I could hold him whenever I wanted to. And even at the end of the week, I was like, she held him again. She's like, oh, but I haven't held you all week. Your mom got you all week. And not in like a bad way, but just like a, that was just my natural tendency. You know, I was like, I want to soak up as much time as possible with him. And it was so like, we didn't get in any arguments, which we've actually never really gotten into any arguments. Um, but they were just so kind. They gave me my space when I needed more space. You know, there was one day I was like, I'm having a really hard day. Like, I don't really want to like go out in public. Cause when we are out in public, we did get a few stares and we did get a few questions because Abby would like nurse him adoption finalization hearing and then we went home that day I think that was harder because seeing a family and a judge and I was told um by them and they were told by their lawyer like right before we went in like hey like you can't say anything you can't do anything like this judge is very strict you will be quick to get arrested and I was like okay <laughs> um I think that his exact words were we will give you a different bed to sleep in tonight and I said okay I will keep my mouth shut and um, so I sat there and I had Abby's mom on the left of me and my husband on the right of me. And they both just kind of like held me as I basically like silently had tears rolling down my face. And it was very, it was very hard and very emotional. And I think the hardest part was the, uh, again, just like doctors need to be informed. I feel like the legal system needs to be informed too, because the words that they use are very harsh. And this hearing was a lot easier than the termination hearing which I'll get into that in just a moment, but it's just like it, the words like, well, this is now your baby and legally it's yours and da, 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 da. And it's like, they're now part of your family. And it's like, yeah, but he's still 
part of my family and obviously like it's nothing against the adoptive parents because they're very like they're very very gracious with how much they let me see him and talk to him um but yeah and I was nervous for that hearing because of the termination hearing and the termination was over zoom and it was like he was like six weeks old so he was very young but the wording they used like do you believe it is in Briar's best interest that Madeline's rights are terminated it's like that's hard to hear as somebody it's like no I don't believe that and obviously they had to say that and I had to say that but it was just it, I'm very grateful that the adoption term adoption finalization was a lot different than that and I'm very grateful I brought my husband as a support system too yeah it just seems like the legal system just as a whole just is not trauma-informed and I'm very shocked that they they said that the judge was so so strict that if you if you spoke a word you'd be arrested like okay (laughs) that's kind of silly I can't imagine you doing anything bad exactly and if you've seen some of my previous TikToks of like walking about it, you know, I definitely had take people on TikTok reach out and be like, we will protest that day. And I'm like, no, my intention is never, I had people being like, what's the address? And I'm like, no, my intention is never to start a riot. Oh my heavens. Or, and I think that's also why they saw that is because I'm pretty sure the ju- they might've Googled me and I could have come up. So maybe that's why they said it. It's just very much like, I'm the type of person, I'm a very peacekeeper, but I do speak more out on TikTok because nobody can respond to me. I mean, they can, but not right away. And so, um, and when I was processing all that on TikTok, it was very much not against the adoptive parents. And I, I, I did my best to make that very clear. And so the things that people, even the other day, I gave like a positive update and somebody in the comments was super passive aggressive. Like, oh, I'm so happy to hear you finally speak positive about the adoptive parents. And I'm like, oh, I think I saw that. Said against them. Like, um, and navigating these emotions obviously there's times where I'm like I feel resentment because in a way we're all humans exactly. we all sometimes think the grass is greener on the other side so seeing somebody happy while you're grieving naturally there's going to be emotions coming up but that's when we have to be like okay those are that's fleshly emotions like let's that's not the truth so there's a difference between what you feel and what the truth is and so and I've navigated that very openly on social media and the reason is because I don't want anybody I don't know what I would do and I, I and I I want, I want to be the person I wish I had walking through this mm-hmm. and the amount of birth moms that have reached out to me or, um, potential adoptive parents or anybody adoptees that have reached out and genuinely wanted to have conversations with me has made all the hate worth it because it's something that, again, I, I don't want to normalize, but I definitely don't want anybody to feel alone in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been super healing for me too. So people could say like, well, this isn't something you air out on social media. And it's like, I haven't said everything I've wanted to say on social media. I've been very picky and choosy with what I put out there. I've just wanted people to feel seen and heard if they are in a situation like this, Um, because you can't Google and just see the ups and downs. You see adoptions. You can see birth moms, you know, 20 years down the line, you can see a, a birth mom who's about to become a birth mom, but to actually navigate the ups and downs, that's what I wanted people to see. Like it's not linear. There's going to be days that are harder and there's going to be days that are easier. And so, and that's why I've shared my story so openly. Again, people put out what they eat every second of the day. And clearly the people saying that have never been like in their local, like people in the no Facebook group where they share way too much. Yes. <laughs> and you're actually sharing um, very fruitful things. So um, it's kind of like a go touch the grass type of moment to everybody doing that. But again, like, I just think what you're sharing is, is clearly, as you said, like so many people reach out to you, like it's helping people. 
it's it's helping so so many people and you sharing what you're sharing is going to and probably already has changing people's lives and inspiring them yeah and that's my goal in sharing you know um i haven't most of my family doesn't know i share and that's why i went on tiktok is because you know tiktok's one of those things where my grandma and grandpa don't follow me over there <laughs> they follow me on facebook and so um as i'm starting to share more on instagram and now i have a youtube channel which is a whole other thing in, in and of itself um, it's given me the opportunity to kind of share unbiasedly because mm-hmm. I don't have that. Um, what's it called? Like, I don't feel like I have to hide what I'm saying to please somebody that goes back to the people pleasing. And now that it's growing and it's becoming a source of income, they're starting to be like, Oh, you've been doing this for a while. Like, let's talk about that. But I think just having that open space to share vulnerably, um, and also share, like, be honest, like I'm human. Mm-hmm. I don't have the same opinion on adoption as I did six months ago or a year ago or five years ago, or I will tomorrow. People don't understand this on TikTok, or maybe they do and they just want to hate, but like emotions and opinions can change and fluctuate based on circumstances. You know what I'm rooted in? I'm rooted in God's word and God's truth. And that's kind of what's kept me, kept me stable and kept me um, grounded in this season. Because even in my worst, worst days, I can go there and find truth. And even in my best days, I can go there and find truth because it is unwavering and he is the same today, yesterday and forever. And so being grounded in that is truly how I've gotten out of that out of that like you know some days I feel like I'm out of control because mm-hmm. I feel crazy um and so and that's my that's my, that's my goal is to push people to, to the word and be like look I you people have saw me walk through this very raw and openly from I think I was in August I posted my first TikTok so two months postpartum to now seven months you you can go back and see the see see the journey mm-hmm. and um, people ask me all the time like how do you get to where you are today uh, the Lord that's the only reason Absolutely incredible. And I love how you talked about, you know, opinions change, emotions change, but God's word doesn't doesn't ever change. And if you want to really have a solid and firm foundation, that's your foundation that you need to base your life on and base your decisions on and base who you are on is on the word of God because it will never change. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And so that's my biggest when people come to me and it's so cliche to say, but like you there's nothing you can do until like, there's nothing you can do to fill a void until you get in your word. Last final question. How is married life? How is married life? It is so good. And I'm just, I'm so, so grateful for my husband because he was kind of thrown into the mix of this um, because I didn't know what to expect from this. And um, he didn't know what to expect. Like I said, emotions change. You know, we got married. I was four months postpartum. And so navigating these like months, <laughs> Uh, has definitely been up and down but he's just been an amazing amazing supporter and it's so amazing just to do life with your you know your best friend it's like Mm -hmm. having a sleepover every day that's what I tell people and I think in a society people are pushing like don't get married young like get your career settled and experience life and it's like why wouldn't I want to experience life with somebody you know is going to support you and unconditionally love you and do life with you especially when that foundation is is on Jesus it's just been, it's been amazing. And he's been such a blessing. Oh, that's so, that's so great to hear. And so beautiful to hear. And again, I know I've thanked you throughout this entire, entire thing, like for a hundred times, but again, I just want to thank you just wholeheartedly for, for coming on to my podcast, for sharing what you shared. And thank you also for doing what you're doing on TikTok and social media, the YouTube, all of it, which I will list all of those in the description of the podcast as well so people can go and they can follow you and they can find you and they can see what you're doing every single day because I know you like to post all your routines which I love 
But again, just from the bottom of my heart, just thank you for coming on and then sharing your story. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I feel like podcasts give such more in-depth version than just like, you know, 60 second TikTok. Yeah. Thank you. I I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And as we always say on every podcast, you're welcome to explore your faith here. Jesus always welcomes you home. And so do I. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for being here. You can listen to the Through Every Season podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Feel free to follow us on our social media platforms on Facebook and Instagram, and the handles are mentioned in the description of the podcast. Welcome to my family. Thanks for being here.